This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate. You're listening to Manawatu People's Radio. Kia ora whanau. Welcome to Calling All Workers, the weekly radio show from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon. You can contact us on Facebook at Union Central or by email at rebelshot, that's R-E-B-E-L-S-H-O-T, at connect, that's K-I-N-E-C-T, dot co, dot N-Z. Calling All Workers, the purpose of the show is to raise the profile of unions Advertise union events, present stories and issues of interest to workers and to build community support for union campaigns and activities. Today we will talk to Peter Harris, who was a close associate and advisor to Michael Cullen when he was Minister of Finance in the Helen Clark government. One of the great losses of 2021 was the death of uh, Cullen from cancer. Certainly within the Labour family, his passing was a source of great sadness as he had been a strong unifying figure in the party. I think it is important that we salute him, his family and his legacy. I hope, Peter, you won't be too embarrassed as I read from Cullen's memoir, quoting his words about you, but I think this will give listeners an understanding of your importance in the framing of Cullen's political legacy. Peter had worked for the Public Service Association, the PSA, then as a research head for the Council of Trade Unions. I had not fully appreciated his phenomenal work capacity. Of all the people I have worked with, Peter had the greatest ability to grasp the essentials of an issue and to develop solutions. While Treasury made little attempt to hide their disquiet at my decision, I think they quickly came to accept that Peter was at least their intellectual equal. Having Peter working for me, those first three years was of incalculable benefit, both in improving my understanding and making sure I was able to grasp the levers of power and work with them. So that's the introduction to Peter Harris. Now, Peter, let's just uh, talk a bit about you. Um, And by the way, welcome to the show. Um, Thank you. The, your background, you were born in what was in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe? Technically not. Uh, oh. I was actually born in South Africa. Oh. Um, but my parents emigrated when I was two years old. So I grew up in Rhodesia slash Zimbabwe. Um, I went back to university in South Africa. Um, uh, but I was um, active in the anti-apartheid movement there um, and the South African government didn't tolerate dissent so I was stripped of my citizenship and sent back to Rhodesia um, and there I uh, was a, I worked in the heavy steel engineering industry um, and ultimately became a lecturer at the university 
and work very closely with uh, trade unions. Uh, the, 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 there was a colour bar in Rhodesia. Um, uh, there were white trade unions um, and um, indigenous black trade unions, uh, and I tended to work with the, the unschooled um, non-white uh, unions uh, until the Rhodesian government decided that I was a, a bit of a pain, so they politely advised me that I'd better leave or be detained, and I ended up in New Zealand. Right. So uh, these right-wing apartheid people gave you a chance to see the world, as it were. <laughs> there were some difficulties in getting to see the world, but that's another story. <laughs> um, just so... I'm sort of interested about Rhodesia at that time. This would be the 50s, would it? And, you know, would you remember your childhood as a happy time? Or was, you know, because the, the war came well, later, didn't it? So. No, absolutely. Uh, I mean, um, Rhodesia was a slightly funny place in the sense that it wasn't like South Africa where there was a very strict legislated uh, racial um, colour bar. Um, Rhodesia, the uh, discriminatory system was largely administered rather than legislated, except in important respects like the allocation of land and um, education system and so on. Um, so if you grew up uh, as a young white person in Rhodesia, you lived a very privileged life. Um, even although my parents weren't very well off, my dad was a fitter and my mum was a bookkeeper, um, we lived a very comfortable life, um, and, um, and 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 in another, it's a lovely country. You know, beautiful environment, um, great weather, good yeah. for a young sporty um, person. You know, going up. Yeah, right. And so uh, after the troubles there with the the government, you moved from there to New Zealand. Yeah, and yeah. I. I uh, there was a, a slight uh, technical complication in the sense that um, the South Africans had stripped me of my citizenship rights and um, I, uh, nobody recognised Rhodesian passports. So the British government claimed that they were the actual sovereign power in Rhodesia, which of course wasn't an effect at all. Um, but if I obtained residency uh, and uh, in another country they would issue me a a temporary uh, passport, a one-week passport in order to get there. And after a lot of difficulties, um, I eventually landed a job lecturing at Massey University um, and that was sufficient for me to negotiate residency with the New Zealand government and the British government gave me a passport. And I arrived in New Zealand on, I think, the Wednesday and my passport expired on the Saturday. So yeah. I was effectively a political refugee and stateless. Um, but the great thing was I had a job and I had residency. And mm -hmm. essentially that's all you need to uh, create a new life in New Zealand. Not only that, but it was like heaven on earth being in Palmerston North, I'm sure. You? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, a colleague once said, uh, when, when there was a, um, a COVID uh, notification in Palmerston North, for the first time ever, Palmerston North has become a place of interest. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll move on quickly from there. So you were at Massey, I believe, with Rob Campbell as a colleague and various other luminaries, and then 
you became, and I Steve think... Mahari. Steve Mahari oh, was right. um, a lecturer in the sociology department right. in the same building. Yeah. Right. And then um, you became, I think, the first, you and Rob may be the first uh, union-based economists in the 1970s. The unions actually started to broaden their horizon a wee bit and... Yeah, the, the, the the, there was an older guy, um, I, don't, I don't mean that in, in a derogatory sense, I mean a long-serving uh, uh, guy who, who I think was an economist. He, he came from the um, Department of Statistics and he worked for the Federation of Labor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so he'd been around for some time, so it wasn't unheard of. But the PSA uh, at that time uh, was building up a research capacity uh, not just in economics, but in all sorts of other areas as well, um, social policy and the like. Um, and so uh, the, um, that division of, of the PSA was recruiting, um, and I suppose, expertise, if you wanted to, want to use the word. Um, and the PSA's research uh, division became quite prominent in the trade union movement um, and in many respects was the lead research agency and was used by what was then the uh, state unions and the Federation of Labour to prepare materials for things like general wage order applications and submissions on legislation and comments on budgets and that sort of stuff. So although it was technically located within the PSA, it was effectively the the um, economic advisor and advocate for the union movement as a whole. Right, and that led on then to the CTU when that was created, then on to Parliament with Michael Cullen and currently with roles on things like the Reserve Bank. But Yes, um, what happened with the Cullen uh, transfer was that there was a change of leadership um, at the CTU in um, late 1999, uh, Ken Douglas and Angela Folks uh, retired. They didn't seek uh, re-election. And almost all of the other staff um, decided that if there's going to be new leadership, it needs to be a clean break. Um, so people like myself and Peter Franks and, and, and the other technical staff at the CTU um, resigned at the same time. So the incoming leadership under Ross Wilson uh, was able to populate uh, the CTU with their own people. And I think that was important that um, we needed, if there's going to be a, a, a clean break, it had to be a clean break. So I was technically unemployed. Um, I'd walked the kids to school. Um, I made facetious comments to the neighbours who were reversing out the, uh, their drives on the way to work, but uh, this is what the unemployed do. They, um, they walk the kids to school to save petrol. Uh, I got home, opened the paper, um, poured myself a coffee, and the phone rang. Uh, and it was Michael Cullen saying... Um, I'm offering you a job as my economic advisor. Um, you'd better accept it because I'm making a press statement at 10 o'clock to that effect. Right. That uh, gave you little opportunity to dissent, it seems. Okay, <laughs> well, let's talk about uh, Michael Cullen as a person. Um, I understand he was a witty person, some would say a bit of a smart ass. Is that a part of his legacy, do you think? Yes, 
yes. Um, he had a very sharp wit. Um, I, I, if you're being honest, I think he, his wit was very much um, directed at the discomfort of his opponents. See, John Key was, was funny, but he was self-deprecating. He made jokes at his own expense. Um, whereas Michael Cullen wasn't that sort of wit. Um, and in some respects, um, it was that wit of his that probably was a big part in my coming to um, be invited to in, into his office. Because if you recall, Winston Peters was quite... Um, aggressively critical of Treasury when he was in opposition. But when he came into government and was made, he was either Treasurer or Minister of Finance, whatever title they gave him at that time. Um, he tended to take Treasury advice. And at the time, Michael Cullen uh, called him a Treasury poodle. Yeah. Uh, an example of the Cullen put-down, yeah. um, quite, quite to the point and, and very um, penetrating uh, and succinct. Um, so having himself now taking on the mantle of Minister of Finance, he had to make it pretty clear that he wasn't a Treasury poodle. So for the first time, um, possibly ever, but certainly in living memory, uh, he, he made the decision not to have a Treasury official in his office. Uh, there was always, uh, the Treasury always seconded um, an advisor to the uh, incumbent minister of the day. And he said, I don't want a Treasury official in my office. I'm having independent advice. I'm having someone who will contest the advice of Treasury. Um, and so that was quite a big call, a high-risk call on his behalf. He and I had shared platforms together, um, Labour Party and CTU platforms, but I'd never worked with him. So it was quite, we were both an unknown quantity to each other. So we, uh, we had to develop a working relationship and, and it developed very quickly, I have to say. Uh, mm. And then we had to develop a working relationship with Treasury. Um, uh, and as it turned out, we developed a good working relationship with them. What, what, what Michael Cullen used to say was that I will always uh, receive, I always take advice from Treasury, I won't always accept it. Um, and that was the, 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 the basis of the developing understanding between um, the administrative arm of government and the executive arm. And it's sort of important, isn't it, because Cullen had no real background in economics. His, his university degree was in history, I think. And, uh, and so mathematics. And mathematics. Uh, people forget that. Um, I think his... Um, his thesis was probably on something like, you know, the history of some bizarre statistical agency or mathematical agency. So he was very numerate, um, uh, and he did do a brief... He got criticised for it. Uh, he did a brief stint, um, some months only, uh, on... Um, secondment uh, at Harvard from memory. Um, and that was paid for by um, senior business uh, people in New Zealand, and, and people did comment that, you know, aren't you taking, um, creating a bit of a dependency on the largesse of big business? But it didn't work like that. It was not enough money. 
and he was not there long enough. But he did have an exposure to economic um, uh, thinking uh, at an academic level, and he had obviously been in the um, in, in, as, as the finance spokesperson for for Labour. So he'd had to school up uh, in 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 the language and the discipline um, right. and, and and the arguments. Right. He also developed a, a very uh, a wonderful set of skills in political management of Parliament and that, didn't he? He became leader of the House and for many years he was very effective in getting the business of Parliament through. He loved Parliament. Um, uh, it, a lot of ministers used to attend Parliament uh, because they had to um, and their main uh, interest was in their portfolio, uh, getting the policy work done, getting the papers through Cabinet, getting the financial allocations for their ministries um, and turning up in, in the House um, because that went with the job. Whereas Cullen, it was almost the other way around. Uh, he once said to me, I spent a lot of energy getting here and I'm not going to um, avoid being in Parliament. He was in the House um, mm. as often as he could be. Uh, when Parliament was sitting, he would more or less clear his diary so he could be in the House. So uh, he was a parliamentarian uh, as well as a politician, uh, and, and I think that reflected in his role. I think he was possibly a whip at one stage in opposition, um, and, but certainly his role as, as leader of the House. And there was some comment at the time because he had a very heavy portfolio. He was Minister of Finance, he was Minister of Inland Revenue. I think even at one time he took on Attorney General or one of those um, portfolios. And I said, well, you know, leader of the House is quite demanding and uh, your portfolios require a lot of time. But that, of all, I think, was, was the, one, the one part of his political career that he deeply treasured. Right. In his um, memoir, he's very complimentary about Korowetari and he seems to indicate that he learnt a great deal about Maori culture and aspirations from Koro and that played a big part in his thinking as a politician. Would you care to comment on that? Um, I, I can't. Uh, uh, I wasn't uh, in... The, I was very much still in the union movement um, during that era. Um, so uh, I just you just have to take um, what, what he says um, on, on the basis of, of um, his own recollection. And he did after... After his parliamentary time, spends a lot of energy on treaty issues, um, uh, and he was deeply um, interested intellectually as well as historically in the whole logic of the treaty uh, and what rights and obligations are created for both the crown and for Iwi, um, and um, and. You know, was was uh, very active afterwards in in right. very successful negotiations of treaty settlement. Can you talk about Michael's relationship with the with organised labour? He 
didn't have a union background and his finance minister role could sometimes conflict with the CTU's aspirations. Was there conflict and disharmony? Not really. Um, he, uh, as you say, he, he didn't have uh, a direct union um, background. Um, but partly through me, um, what I would do is make time in his, in his diary for the CTU to assemble whoever wanted to come along from its affiliated union to sit around the table and talk. Um, and so a, a, a union delegation, as it were, uh, would meet informally with him uh, and would sit and chat for an hour or more. Uh, and we did that quite regularly. Uh, so um, he he had um, he, he created opportunities for unions to to come and talk and and gave them the opportunity to listen about what he was thinking and doing. But the union movement wasn't that active on financial fiscal um, topics. It was much more in terms of industrial relations legislation. Um, uh, and, um, and, and that was, I suppose, channeled through Helen Clark and Margaret Wilson, uh, with, with Michael Cullen playing a senior ministerial role at the policy level, um, but not directly involved in negotiations on new industrial relations legislation or minimum wage movements and that sort of thing. Okay. Turning to his, his legacy, from, for me, I think the positives uh, really were Kiwi Sabre, although you can take a, a great deal of credit for that as well. Working for families, uh, the treaty settlements. The negatives that I saw it was that he sort of smoothed the rough edges of neoliberalism, but didn't fundamentally change the policy settings. Did and didn't deal with beneficiary low incomes and poverty. Didn't deal with capital gains and wealth inequality. What's your comment on that uh, rather biased assessment? Um, I think if you look at Michael Cullen's legacy, uh, he was a firm believer that there were limits on what people... Sorry, I'll turn that around there were certain minimum entitlements that people should expect from the state. But there were also limits on how much they should expect from the state. So, for example, with New Zealand superannuation, uh, dignity in retirement is the least the citizens can expect from the state. It's also the most they can expect from the state. They can't expect the state to replicate in retirement the incomes they had during working lives. They want more than basic dignity in retirement. They have to save for themselves. So he was very, very uh, uh, focused on retirement income and savings for the individual. That was where he put a lot of emphasis of it on, on, on his social policy. And, of course, partly that's KiwiSaver. Um, he set up the, um, the working group that I chaired that designed... Um, the architecture of KiwiSaver, but then he pushed it through Parliament and, and he then 
allocated significant amounts of money to subsidising KiwiSaver. Um, he set up the New Zealand Superannuation Fund to try and future-proof, or partly future-proof, um, New Zealand superannuation as the population aged and the numbers in, in retirement increased. Um, I think the uh, tackling... The, um, the Working for Families was quite a big... Um, initiative to reduce poverty. And credit here has to go to Steve Mahari, um, who worked in the early days when money was tight, when the government first came in in late 1999, money was very tight. And there wasn't a lot of money for big um, social welfare initiatives. And, and, and Steve Mahari worked very hard to make sure that the social welfare system um, was was cut out fat, um, and then after three years he said, right, we've gone through this, now it's time to do something about the poor. And working for families, I think, was that initiative. Whether more would have been done on beneficiary incomes in the fullness of time, I suppose we'll never know. Uh, what Michael Cullen did, which I think is his biggest legacy, um, which, funnily enough, uh, is not on your list, was he left office with the Crown having zero debt. The, it, it obviously had some debt, but that debt was offset by financial assets, like the balance in the superannuation fund and the, the amount that, that um, students were paying back on student loans. So the net debt was zero. And that meant that when New Zealand hit the global financial crisis in 2008, there was scope for the government to um, ease um, the purse strings uh, to keep the economy afloat, and we didn't do nearly as badly as many other countries in in, um, in getting through the global financial crisis. And I know um, people say, oh, that was John Key and Bill English, but John Key and Bill English couldn't have done it uh, if they had entered the GFC with Muldoon-level debt. They entered the GFC with zero debt uh, net um, and were able to um, go through that uh, by uh, priming the pump. It also meant that when we hit the COVID um, uh, crisis, um, the level of debt that was existing was a lot lower than it would otherwise have been had Cullen not left that base zero debt uh, uh, in, in 2008. So a lot of the anti-poverty activities that have occurred more recently uh, have been um, enabled by his focus on avoiding uh, debt. Uh, the, the, one of the interesting things about his um, philosophy as a Minister of Finance was that um, there's the old Keynesian uh, idea that what governments should do is spend money in a recession uh, to, to stop unemployment um, increasing and the, economic, and the economy contracting. But in, a, in boom times, you pay it back. Um, you, you don't just spend the surpluses. You, you pay off the debt you 
occurred during bad times. Uh, and there's an old saying that everyone's a, Ke- a Keynesian in a recession. Um, in other words, when times are bad, everybody wants to spend uh, money. But when times are good and the government's running surpluses, everybody wants tax cuts and they want um, increases in spending on health and education and social welfare and so on. What Cullen did was to actually run a counter-cyclical, what the economists call a counter-cyclical economic fiscal strategy. In other words, when there were surpluses, he paid down the debt. Um, he, he, he was under enormous pressure um, to spend up uh, on social programs, and he was under enormous pressure from uh, the opposition to cut taxes. Uh, these, I can remember one radio commentator, these surpluses are obscene. Um, they're thefts. They're stealing from the current generation. Well, they're not actually. They're paying back the debt that was incurred by the current generation being supported during bad times. Um, so I, I, that, to me, is his biggest legacy, was to leading the public finances in a strong position. Well, thank you, Peter. We're running out of time now, so I have to draw this to a conclusion. But thank you for your time and for your insights today. Uh, I know the listeners will find it very interesting to have an inside of you of what took place over those years. But, Peter, we wish you well for 2022 and, and stay strong. all of the workers of the Manawatu from That's me. Us. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Peter. Okay, John. See you. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show.